0: Hey everyone, Greg here. Just a tiny announcement before we get started. It really helps the show if you hit subscribe or rate us on iTunes or Spotify. Also new for season two, we would love for you to email us at upsell at eater.com with questions you have for us or comments about the show, suggestions of how we can make the upsell better or just info about your personal life. You can ask us literally anything and who knows, we might even uh, answer it on the show.
1: You are listening to the Eater Upsell, the food podcast of food website eater.com.
0: Hosted by yours truly, I'm Greg Morabito, the editor of Eater NY.
1: And I'm Helen Rosner, the executive editor of Eater. Helen, who do we have on the show today? We have the handsome, talented, and extraordinarily intelligent Ted Allen. Ted wait, Ted Allen? Ted Allen, the face, Jeez, heart, Ted and Ted brain of a- chopped.
0: Oh, I love
1: Ted Allen. He's he's America's dream dinner party guest. And speaking of dinner parties, Craig, I know you don't really like to throw them.
0: I like to cook, but I don't host dinner parties. I don't know how to like put together that menu or anything like that. Like, I don't think I've ever actually done it.
1: Entertained. You don't entertain.
0: I've entertained as in, hey, what do you want? Do you want a beer? Here, have a seat. Sit in the good part of the couch that doesn't have the stains on it. So giving. I try. I want to make friends. You see? I like to cook one thing, like one, here's your bowl of something that I made. And I like to cook a lot, actually, in that kind of capacity. And I had some friends, you know, I was went mentioning with him. I was like, OK, the food's going to be a little bit. She was like, Greg, I know you're going to serve it at like 11. I'm just expect <laughs> I just know that you can't possibly finish cooking anything before like 1030. And she was right. You say you're doing it like Madrid style, right?
1: Like, of course, we don't eat dinner until 11. What are you, a savage? <laughs> like, yes, this is this is the time. Like, we're gonna spend three hours like picking at olives and getting totally fucked up
0: on white wine. Olives, I need something like olives.
1: Olives are like dinner party one hundred and one, man. If you're not gonna have anything else, you need a freaking bowl of olives waiting when your first guest walks in the door.
0: Okay, so what else is dinner party one hundred and one?
1: Oh man, I mean, like, you want to know what you're doing ahead of time, right? Uh, like, yeah. Have your menu planned out. I usually write a lot of lists. And so I'll like make like the lists of all the dishes and then I'll make the lists of like the orders in which they need to cook. And then when I pull this off successfully, because I'm making myself sound far more competent than I actually am. But like when I pull this off successfully, it's because I have made almost everything, usually everything except for one thing can be totally completed ahead of time. And then one thing needs to be cooking while the guests get there so that, like, I can have something to fuss around with. And then usually I will sort of strategically pick something that is very, very quick to come together that I can just, like, open the fridge, throw together once people are already there because that's sort of that, like, final gesture of effortlessness where it's like, oh, oh, shoot, I forgot to do a salad. Oh, this old thing, I just happen to have these phenomenal local hydroponic lettuces and this exquisite, like, goat cheese here in the fridge. Let me just, like, casually toss something so off. So
0: there should be some element of off-the-cuff creation at the very end?
1: Like a heavily
0: calculated
1: off-the-cuff something.
0: Right, right? but you don't tell your guests, you're like, let me just reach into the fridge to find the ingredients for the salad I'm pretending I didn't know I had all the ingredients for.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I if they're like, oh, did you plan to do that ahead of time? I'll, I'll fess up to it.
0: Only a real weirdo would be like, wait a second, did you actually, are you pretending you know, here?
1: Oh, the other big secret, the really, really important thing is tell someone else to bring dessert.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Because like there's only so much a human can be expected to do in
0: like the care and feeding of your loved ones. I think you've you've laid out some pretty good rules there. In addition to telling somebody to bring dessert, what, Do you tell anybody to do any – are you like you've got to bring the bag of party ice or you got to – Ice.
1: Yeah, no, I do actually. This is is a new trick that I learned that one of my friends taught me, which is that whenever someone asks what they can bring, if you have nothing left to assign to people, like if you've already told someone to bring dessert and someone else has said they're going to like bring like four bottles of wine and you're like, you know, I'm all set. um, If anybody asks if they can bring anything, always say ice because you can never have too much ice. And there, unless you're, like, one of those, like, extremely fancy people with an ice machine built into your fridge, there's it, – it's right, Unless
0: you're one of the Jetsons.
1: Right, right. Unless you're living in, like, flying car future land with your fancy little ice-making fridge. Like, no, I, nobody has enough ice trays to actually, like – See eight people through a night of drinking.
0: I mean, if you have enough ice, you're probably not throwing a very good dinner party.
1: Exactly. So tell people to bring ice.
0: Okay. So, what about the cleanup? If somebody's like, hey, can I help you clean up? What do you say? Always say yes. Really? Always say yes. Oh, I'm always like, no, I'll do it tomorrow.
1: Yeah. But then tomorrow you have to clean up.
0: Yeah. But I don't, I feel bad making people do work. I made dinner. <laughs> and it was a delicious dinner, yeah, Helen.
1: Do my fucking dishes. I cooked you a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> like, No, look, I mean, if people don't volunteer, that's totally fine. And I expect the cleanup is part of it. But I think that like, you know, you like politely do more. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm not going to like make people like scrub like crusty shit off of a baking pan. But like,
0: here's a big pan that I made polenta
1: and I I don't have a No, but I think, you know, if someone volunteers and you say no and they like really insist i think it's nice it's a it's a a nice gesture i mean if you know that you've got nothing going on tomorrow and like you're going to clean up this totally cool but also i suspect so like you and i both live in apartments in brooklyn and so like space is somewhat at a premium and if we're gonna have dessert at the end of dinner the dishes that are all on the table need to go somewhere and so they get piled up in the sink and then dessert happens and then there's like dishes from dessert and then those have nowhere else to go and so i think that like if you can incorporate cleaning up into the fun of the dinner party like if you are all at that point like you know several bottles of wine in and like everyone's got their drink in one hand and you're sort of scrubbing with the other and the music is on and like conversation is continuing it's like you know after dessert you can all play charades or cards against humanity or whatever or you can just like hang out and like scrub a dish with your free time but yeah no man throw a dinner party invite me over
0: I will. All right. And I'll invite all of you listeners out there.
1: Oh, guys, see you next Saturday at Greg's house. Bring I, the ice.
0: I live at one, two, three.
1: Yeah, if you if you do actually want to attend a dinner party at Greg's house, I'm going to now force him to host one. Drop us a line at upsolideater.com explaining why you deserve to be there. And I don't know, maybe we'll convince someone to like fly you. We're probably this is not going to really happen. But, it, you know, send us a letter saying why you should eat dinner with me and Greg. <laughs>
2: And now, in the Eater Upsell Studios, Ted Allen. The funny thing, actually, is that from watching Chopped and Chopped Jr., I don't really think you get to know me that well. I do a lot of counting and introducing and trying to pronounce difficult names from all over the world, um, but there's the, you know, the chefs are the stars of the show, so it's fun for me to have a chance to do an interview like this because I can stretch out, and maybe I'll even say something funny.
1: Oh, can't wait. You're the star of our show. <laughs> I well, I say. thank
2: you very much. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Eater, so it's fun to actually see the place.
1: Oh, go on! It's
2: gorgeous. All these, all this gilded Rococo decor, Uh, the sumptuous carpets. I mean, those those clicks—you know—they pay
0: for—they pay for something nice. Internet
1: journalism is so lucrative.
0: Dig it. So Chopped, I feel like actually more than any other food-related television program, it like permeates culture. Like people that like relatives and stuff, I have that don't follow food media or don't really you know aren't cooks or not huge like restaurant people mm-hmm. they know about chopped they watch chopped and i just i'm
2: constantly impressed by how it's just it's
1: a phenomenon it's a
2: phenomenon yeah we're very fortunate and we're very uh, appreciative and the network is supporting us big time and putting making more and more and more episodes than we ever have made and so when you're on a tv show there's a, every, every time you have a rap party there's usually a t-shirt given out to the crew and the team. And I have one from every time that we've done that. I have coffee mugs and backpacks and other kinds of crap. But when you're on the show, I feel it's not appropriate to walk or, for me to walk around with a chopped t-shirt would be just the height of...
1: It's like wearing the band's t-shirt to the band's show.
2: Well, I mean, I did that. Maybe I was a dork, <laughs> but I'm the host of the show and I feel like it would just look like I'm desperate for attention. I get plenty more attention than what I want. So I, so I don't wear them. But the crew tells me that anytime they go out drinking with a a chopped T-shirt on people. People grab them and go. Oh, get really excited and say, "Oh my God, you work there!" Wow. Um, um,
1: I have I have a, a hypothesis about why I think it's so successful, which is that it is a show in which cooking happens, but it's not a cooking show. Mm-hmm. It's a game show.
2: It's a. It is a game show. It's a. Or uh, I also sometimes liken it to a basketball game. Yeah. It has the intensity and the speed of a sport, and this is why so much of these. The I think a good competitive show like ours makes more sense in prime time than say a standard Sur show. As much as I love cooking shows and always have, it's just a much broader audience. And people who don't ever cook. I feel like there's a
0: lot of little stories in every episode and that's kind of the thing that I
2: feel like It's like that adrenaline
1: buildup too though. It's like it's like tension release, tension release like every fourteen seconds.
2: I think the editing is really, really, really good on our show. As an Um,
1: editor, I appreciate that. Oh,
2: you are an editor. So you understand. I mean, first of all, I don't know how you do it. Um, It's easier
1: uh, with words than TV, I think.
2: I'm sure it is. But even then, uh, one episode of Chop takes 37 days to edit.
1: No, it doesn't. Which
2: makes me want to kill myself just thinking about it.
1: Wait, is that a real number? Is that you being hyperbolic? No,
2: it's a real number. 37? (laughs) I mean, how is that even possible? But if you think about it, we have easily 13, 14 cameras. Each of which uh, it's a twelve-hour shoot day, which probably means what I don't know seven hours of tape times thirteen cameras. With there are four producers who sit up in the control room and log moments that they think are going to be significant in the show. The, the, it's I don't I I'm with you. I think of it as a game show, but it also had the the only reality elements that it has is that producers don't know what are going to be the storylines until they happen. Right. Say somebody drops a steak on the floor, but then deci- decides to plate it, which hasn't happened in a very long time. You know, you want to hope that you got a picture of that because we're not going to fake it. And that will obviously be a story. So up somewhere, somehow using computers or something, they they log what moment in time and what camera got that shot.
1: So how does that compare to your first foray into reality TV?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Chopped is very, is very different from Queer Eye. I, I have n- seen far fewer of our cast members naked. <laughs> um, that well, really, just Carson was the only one that was r- r- routinely nude. Um, he
1: seems like that sort.
2: Yeah, he's drop you know, the
1: pants, take b- off the shirt.
2: He actually looks terrific nude, but. Um, <laughs> Not that I ever wanted to see that.
1: Please go into more detail. I've actually
2: also seen Padma, Padma Lakshmi naked, and uh, when I was on Top Chef. Wow! And you know she's every bit as stunning as you'd think. Now, I, for me, we were in a, sharing a dressing room uh, on location in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, for season three, I think it was, when Stephanie Izzard won and um, over Richard Blaze in a dramatic oh. sunrise moment. When that <laughs> show would shoot till four or five in the morning, it was ridiculous. But uh, she was, she was getting ready to take her dress off and change. And I said, oh, well, I'll just leave because I, I'll step out because that's a gen- what a gentleman would do. And she said, what, are you repulsed by the sight of my nude body? And I said, not at all. <laughs> that's and a I challenge. Have a, I have a mental picture that so many men would appreciate more. Um, incredibly beautiful woman.
1: She's extraordinarily beautiful. She is. Best and hair ever. Talented Mm-hmm. Cook and host and presenter, yeah, but also very beautiful.
2: Yes, remarkable person.
1: So to go back to
2: Queer Eye, that's <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Sorry, look, I Who else have
1: you seen naked? Thank God five. you're
2: gonna. Thank God you edit this thing. <laughs> Are that's the Do only tune? Who else? That's a good question. As as an interviewer myself, uh, on occasion, um, who who all have you seen naked that was interesting? That's the only one I can tell you about. The only uh, two I can tell you about. But, no, nobody else.
0: But back to Queer Eye. So that was another like phenomenon. And I feel like I I must it have had some sort popularized of
1: the, the word queer, first yeah, of all. kind of did, like, it, yeah. I, like in a massive and monumental watershed kind of way. I remember when it came out reading uncountable articles that were explaining to people
2: what the word queer meant. I will never forget the arrival of the word queer when... Uh, it actually, and the cast... What, particularly myself, didn't like the title. To me, queer eye is queer was such a loaded word. This is back, I mean, Queer Nation was still uh, around. This
1: is like 2003, 2004, right? Mm, yes. Yeah. And
2: queer was a a word that had not been nearly as embraced as it has today and was a very loaded political word. But I, but I came to understand, and I'll never forget when I, the first time I watched Matt Lauer try to say queer, the word queer, I mean, he kind of bungled it a little bit because it just wasn't a word we were comfortable. Someone like Matt Lauer wouldn't, shouldn't be comfortable with that word. But I think it has something to do with what caught people's attention.
1: Yeah. It was an act of reclamation.
2: I -hmm. can't exactly explain how
0: this connects the dots in my mind, but I want to say that Queer Eye for the Straight Guy uh, largely influenced um, straight men somehow getting into a lot of these things about like design and food and fashion um, I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Like-
2: yeah, sure. I mean, I think Queer Eye. We were the first all gay cast of any show that has ever been on American TV. Um, we, uh, I think, the show was, I think, pretty brilliantly made for what it was. It had certainly pl- plenty of crass crass commercialism in it uh, as well, but it also brought together two groups of people that just were never brought together and. Over the, over the subject matter of interior decorating and food and fashion, below that was burbling that sort of subtext. But The best episodes were the ones when, in, in which the straight guy, as we called him affectionately, was, <laughs> was visibly uncomfortable with us at the beginning and, that, and then warmed up and they always warmed up because it's a powerful thing to have five people who know something about those areas care about you and help set you up aside from the fact that of course we give you a television a giant screen TV and a sofa which is awesome <laughs> and paint your apartment really cool um so th- th- there was a there was a power there uh, let's we have to remember that for all whatever impact it had that was such a flash in the pan queer eye was hot for like a year we made 99 episodes in Bravo and but it became the linchpin of what Bravo still is today the president of Bravo Used to say this all the time. She called it the queer eye unified theory of Bravo, which was those are still the subject areas that they're interested in. Yeah,
0: they just pulled different you know ideas out of it and kind of spun it off into these these like different trees of content. I feel like, but
1: there was something I think really powerful about like what you were saying, Greg. That these things that maybe a certain sort of hyper masculine macho dude of the early two thousands might have considered beneath him or like outside of his sphere, and then he was you know, presented with five gay men, but also just like you are actual humans. And I think for a lot of these guys, I mean, watching it at home, it felt like this was for those guys who would appear uncomfortable. It was the first time that they were having meaningful interactions with people that they knew were gay.
2: Mm -hmm. And by
1: the end of it, they were like, okay, first of all, you are actual human beings with like feelings and thoughts and expertise and intelligence. And I respect you in these various ways. And then also these things that I've been dismissing as way too feminine or stupid or dumb are actually going to help me get laid
2: Absolutely, which is absolutely was our goal, of course. Uh, And and it suddenly becomes okay to say, dude, do you like the way these jeans look on me? Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that's awesome. I mean, I think it's great. God knows the retailers loved it. Uh, (laughs) And I loved my category because it was absolutely limitless. I thought I had by far the best job.
1: Oh, you did. You were food and wine? I was food and wine.
2: So I could choose whatever, first of all, there was no for some reason, those industries didn't seem to be coughing up product placement money at the time. So nobody bothered me to try to, you know, flack for some horrible product. <laughs> Craft
1: um, salad dressing will we'll elevate your dinner date. There <laughs> was
2: exactly one, actually, that I did have to do and it was fine. And I, I insisted on approving anything they were going to let me do anyway. Uh, it was ranching Bull, Rancho Zabaco Dancing Bull Zinfandel, which is about a $6 bottle of wine in any grocery store. Um, and that was fine with me, but I mean, the, the it, poor Cayenne had to sell Crest White strips like forty-seven times, <laughs> um, and I didn't have to. I could talk, introduce somebody to the different varieties of champagne. I could show you how to break down a lobster. I could show you how to make fried chicken. I did all those things
0: for that wine. Angle, though, that's got to be a kind of seminal moment for wine on television. I feel like like I can't think of any other show really before that where that was kind of just kind of baked into it. You know,
2: people who love people who love wine have been trying forever to get wine TV shows on TV and nobody watches them. That's the problem. Food Network. I'm 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 sure they've tried and I know they would be delighted. But if they could succeed with it, but if you try to pitch them a wine show, they're there, you could just see them lose interest. It's it's not something a lot of people want to watch on TV. Wow but we but I could do a segment about it. Um, and meanwhile, the the hardest gig of course was Tom Felicia's you can't fake a makeover. you have to go buy furniture and you have to apply wallpaper to walls. It takes days and it's and there are deadlines and there's pressure and you have to have it done by X day. you have to, which if, if you've ever so much as painted a room, you know does not happen ever. Looking back on it now, I mean it was uh, there are several things about the show I would have changed. Um, I would have put us in the same uniform for every episode, thus sparing us. We borrowed 10 outfits per episode for us to wear, one to wear for the shooting of the show and one to wear for when we were hanging out in our loft afterwards. By the way, this is such ancient history, you might want to cut this because nobody who listens to your podcast has ever seen Queer Eye.
0: (laughs) I watched it religiously. You did, really? I did. I just feel like it was always on when you go over to somebody's apartment.
2: like. it, well, it t- was <laughs> it was on because it was the only show advertisers wanted to buy on, on Bravo back then. Because it was
1: such a phenomenon.
2: Yeah, it was all they had. They had that in Cirque du Soleil, which in turn is why they ordered too many episodes of it and ran them, burned us into the ground. It was like a comet instead of a, instead of a whatever lasts longer than a comet. Um, a planet, let's say. A sun. a sun. A sun. I have to say the way it all worked out for me and Tom Felicia predicted, our design guy, Tom Felicia predicted that I was the one that would end up getting a gig on Food Network just because it translated well and because that network was there and established and was the home of all things food at the time. But I got really lucky the way it worked out because when Queer Eye ended, I had already been invited to guest judge on both Top Chef on Bravo and Iron Chef America on Food Network and neither network cared that I was doing those things simultaneously because I was just a judge in that And it wasn't a role that they, they didn't see me as a, you know, like a, a host or a real family member. It wasn't
1: like member. talent in the same way that no, it's evolved into now.
2: Th- and they paid me, but not a lot. What was important about it was that it kept me visible on two very visible food shows. Um, after Queer I just dis- disappeared. And during the couple of years it took for Food Network to decide they, they liked me um, and wanted to hire me for something else. So I'm, I'll, I'll always treasure that. And by the way, the food on Iron Chef was awesome. I know you've re- <laughs> recently talked with Chef Batali. My favorite battle, uh, I got to judge Battle Parmesan oh. with Mario Batali and Andrew Carmelini. Shut up. And my, it was it was like a holy moment. And I'll never forget that Mark Ladner, who was Mario's sous chef, along with Ann Burrell on Iron Chef, Mark Ladner took a, an entire wheel of parm and dug a bowl out into it. And then tossed spaghetti carbonara in that. That's on, amazing. It was such great theater. Such, I mean, I love that. It was, a, and it was such an, a heavenly meal. I mean, I, you know what? I can't remember who won. I, I can't imagine either of them losing to. I mean, what an incredible
0: wow! So, time. just to back it up a little bit, you're. I'm just kind of curious about how you got into, I know that you have a journalism, uh, a background in food journalism, but what was the thing that kind of sparked that? Were you someone who was really into food or into cooking as a kid?
2: Were you into going to restaurants? Or
1: was it all just like a total fluke?
2: Uh, I like to call it the hoax that passes for my career. I think and we all
1: feel that way. Probably. I think
2: we need to now. The yeah. way the world works, nobody works at the same insurance company for 30 years and retires. It doesn't With the
1: gold watch. With the gold watch. Yeah. No,
2: no, it doesn't. My, my dad did, but he was my dad. Maybe your dad did too. Hmm. I was an editor at Chicago Magazine, which is an excellent monthly, and it's along the line. It's a lot like New York Magazine, just less frequent. Um, and then the culture of city magazines for years was Revolved heavily around restaurants, they invented restaurant listings, not newspapers. Of uh, those listings, of course, have now been usurped by you guys.
1: <laughs> but that's hey, the but internet destroys it all. It
2: does, I know. Hey, I got I'm not, listen. I got a knife. The other day, I figured out that I, I had to do a. I had to use a teleprompter, at, and I realized that that's just the latest thing that the iPad and the iPhone have taken over. Yeah. The, the, the guy was scrolling the text on his phone and it was appearing on an iPad right under the lens. Um, did you write the listings? I did not write the listings. Thank God. I would have that would have killed me. Um, I was a senior editor at the magazine. I edited the front of the book section, which I loved. So I assigned all those stories. I wrote feature stories about anything, not just food. Um, but after, but I became but I found myself getting sent out to interview chefs and include chefs in my section and. Uh, getting invited to you know seasonal menu tastings at restaurants, and I just fell in love with it.
1: So maybe this is a deep cut, but was this was the Penny Pollock era? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a legend.
2: I think she's still there. Yeah,
1: she sends out her weekly newsletter. I still get it.
2: You read Penny's? Well, you know what? Her <laughs> co- her undercover. Name, oh, I shouldn't say it because she might still use it. She, she Penny was the Penny was the dining editor and still is. Um, she started as a secretary. No way. A long, long, long time ago. She's been there probably I don't know thirty years and worked her way up. And she was the assistant to the former dining editor uh, and learned the ropes and had this, she had this two, this double giant Rolodex of names in the Chicago food world and nationally. Um, So I was doing regular magazine journalism, but also sort of tiptoeing into food. And I asked Penny if I could audition to be one of the five or six critics that they had at the time, which is something I rarely mention these days because I work with lots of chefs. Um, but I found – and I got, I got the gig because I took it super seriously and I'm to this day super, very offended and put off by dining criticism that is flippant or cruel or unkind unless a chef has really done something unspeakable, in which case they deserve it. But a Chicago Magazine only wrote about restaurants that we thought were good. So that helps.
1: Oh, and when you're once a month and you've got a limited number of physical print pages, you have to make your decisions. Exactly. And people want to hear about what they should do. Yeah, not enth- what they should
2: enthusiasm do. is super important in food writing. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, and I also understand that a good takedown can be entertaining for people, but that's never really been where my heart, Lies. So I would come, I would, and since I was a junior critic, I was the new kid, I would be sent to restaurants that usually were okay. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't sending me to Charlie Trotter. Uh, but I found it in, in, intensely fascinating to go into a restaurant, be it high or low, and th- sincerely. Appraise what you thought of what they were trying, whether they were doing what they were promising for you.
1: It's a totally different headspace than just being a standard diner, too. It
2: definitely is. I
1: mean, you're you're looking around the entire room, you're paying attention to the choreography of the service and, you know, what's the logic of why this thing is on this plate? And did this carrot rosette appear more than one time and more than one entree? And I think um, I had a brief stint as a critic mm-hmm. in My Secret Past also, and it's so different. You it's, think, oh, I go out to eat all the time, I could totally be a critic, but no.
2: Uh, you know, I, I, would never want to do it for the New York times and I don't, well, I, I certainly wouldn't want to do it that many nights a week anymore. But at the time when I was a broke young journalist in a, in a terrific food city, it was awesome. And I only had to do it maybe once a week or so. Um, I, and I love that you use the word choreography to describe good service. And I mean, I, that's one of the things I fell in love with was I remember a dinner I had at True, which was the restaurant run, co-operated by Gail Gand and Rick Tremonto in the Gold Coast. The and, caviar
1: staircase, right? Yes,
2: the God. Did you did you live there? I grew up in Chicago. Oh, yeah. my <laughs> gosh. Okay. The caviar staircase. Gail Gand once said something to me that was... Fairly, inarguably pretentious, but true. Which was, she described the kitchen as a ballet of knives, a ballet with knives and fire. Oh, that's but it, beautiful. but as but just as you said, choreography. I'll yeah. never forget the moment. And there's probably a name for this. When I looked over at a ten top next to me, and there were. There maybe was it was a ten t- maybe it was eight. Let's say there were eight diners on our, at a round table, and there were eight waiters, each of them approaching with a cl- with a dish with a cloche on top, which I now work with every day. at Chopped, only theirs were prettier, and they un- and they placed the plates in front of each diner, and then at, at, simultaneously lifted all those cloches at the same time to reveal something precious and amazing underneath. And I thought, God, there's a love and a craft and a beauty to that to waiting tables that can be so much fun to watch. It's-
1: it's really I magical. I, enjoy,
2: I think I would enjoy doing it. I never got to be a waiter and, you know, I I could probably get a job as one now, I suppose, but it's, you know.
1: <laughs> Every so often, I, if I'm at like a particularly high-end restaurant where they do that kind of simultaneous service, I'll I'll catch them making eye contact with each other right before they do it. And I feel like I'm seeing backstage, you know, it's like they mm-hmm. look at each other, they give each other the wink and then
2: it's There's like this, a thing. And I, I know it's from a different world and today sometimes, I mean, even going back to... Um, A few years ago, Anthony Bourdain tried to get – shot a couple episodes of a show with people just sitting around a table talking. And uh, the one I did was with Bill Buford and – anyway, Bourdain brought up the question, is it appropriate for us now – we were then freshly in a recession. Is it appropriate for us to be talking about $500 meals with 27 courses? And arguably, uh, maybe it never is. I don't know but i can't say i don't sometimes once in a great while enjoy a meal like that and just the 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 body language of it the way if you're walking down a hallway in a restaurant like that and you encounter a server the way he's got one arm behind his back and he stops until you pass him i mean it's just there's a bygone elegance yeah, to it's that it's kind
0: of it can't die it can't die in these big cities i feel like i mean you know i don't know how how many restaurants you know these big cities like new york chicago can support that do that kind of thing at that kind of price, but I hope it doesn't ever go away. I don't you know?
2: think it will, and I say this as a guy who just ate a, a slice at Bravo Pizza and who took the subway here, so, you know, I mean I, <laughs> I did celebrate a significant birthday uh, last year at Per Se, and I don't care uh, that they that some people think they deserve to have t- a star or two taken <laughs> away from them. I thought it was magnificent. I thought it was fantastic. Spellbinding.
1: And the, the entirety of that kind of experience, like the bygone elegance, to use your term, I think it's so... Fascinating to kind of trace the origins of that kind of service and to like locate it in, you know, the manor houses of the turn of the century in the way that it really is just a 100 percent focused on the guest not seeing the seams and not seeing the strings and just having this perfectly buffeted pillowed experience of luxury and pleasure.
2: Well, you know, and one of the things that bothers me about a restaurant like that is I feel like if I were a chef, I would dislike most of the people that I serve the food to. What I admire about that service is the people doing the service, and I'm looking at them the way you're looking at them, and just the excellence of it, the timing, the knowledge, the grace that they can bring to a situation where the customer is often irritated and complaining, and the way they can take without... Without losing their smile for a second, the way they can diffuse a situation or fix it. And with seamless elegance, I, there's just – that's a cra- it's a craft. It's an art that practiced well is a beautiful thing to watch. It's
1: benevolent even if the manipulation. Are, yes. Yeah. Even,
2: even if your customers are horrible people.
1: <laughs> Which they probably disproportionately are if they're – I mean, the psychology of spending that much money, I think, creates either monsters or meek little lambs who are going to say yes to everything.
0: Okay. So you're in Chicago – and you're doing some writing for Esquire, and how does how does the where does the phone call come in for for queer eye, or how did how did that
2: those two worlds meet? You know, if there's one, I I, I like to talk to students once in a while. I used to talk to journalism classes once in a while, and I uh, the only thing I can. I don't know if this is even helpful, but the, I'd like to advise people to keep your eyes open for weird opportunities. Because every every job I've ever had was necessary for the job that I currently do. Um, I still interview people uh, as a journalist all day. I interview those four chefs. I draw questions. I draw information out of them. I think I'm better at it than some TV producers are. Not ours. Ours are amazing. But they they spend two hours with them i get them for in little 10 minute chunks and i'm trying to get them to say things that are interesting and it just as you do all the time um i got so i was i was i had a contract with Esquire i was regularly trying to come up with stuff to do for them and my the magazine of course is based here uh a friend called me and had seen a casting notice for queer eye and I thought, well, I guess I could go try out for that. It'd it'd be a write-off. I'll spend 200 bucks to fly out there. I'll crash on my editor's sofa in Hoboken, which I did. And I'll have something to laugh about later. Um, Because something like 500 people auditioned for Queer Eye. Wow, that seems like a lot, like a big call for sort of an unknown, you know. Well, you know, it turns out that lots of people want to be on television. Uh, Among the people (laughs) that were there uh, were Joe Dolce, who was the editor of Details at the time. Robert Verdi, who I who's a, a guy who works in fashion and who nonetheless is delightful. Yeah, is a sweet guy. Was wearing a cranberry colored suit. Uh, <laughs> I, I can see it like it was yesterday. It was in a Bravo at the time. Had a the, well. This happened in a One Pin Plaza on a sweltering day in July, and I remember when Carson walked in the room. It was a conference room. A whole bunch of gay guys in this stuffed into this conference room. Carson walked into the room. He was wearing. Uh, Chanel sunglasses this uh, a, a gauzy shirt kind of along the lines of the pirate shirt on Seinfeld okay. um, these sort of flowing uh, Ralph Lauren pants with big blue hibiscus flowers on them and um, slides Gucci slides and he threw a Louis Vuitton duffel bag into the, in the middle of the conference room table and said I think it's adorable that any of you queens think you're gonna get my part <laughs> And as it turns out, he was right. That's um, confidence. That's how you do it. That's how you make an entrance. Huh? He, uh, Man, he announced himself. And it turned out that Carson and I were the first two people that were chosen. They kept putting us in different combinations of five to see where the, who had chemistry. And these are two guys from Boston, Dave Collins and Dave Metzler. And to their credit, I think they cast us really, really well. Had they had it to do over again, they probably would have chosen five staggeringly handsome guys. Instead, what they did was, they chose a couple handsome guys, and then a bunch of guys who kind of knew something. Um, and I talked a good game. It turned out that the Esquire I was talking about how every job I've ever had was necessary for the one I got. I have now. It turned out also that the producers were very enamored of Esquire magazine.
1: It's a great magazine. It is a
2: great magazine. God bless David Granger, recently uh, deposed. Um,
1: have a moment of silence. He's my favorite magazine editor.
2: David Granger- Obsessed ch- with him. He still, he now ha- holds the record, longest running editor in the his- history of Esquire. But anyway, the, the Queer Eye was all about teaching men how to be- High class, how to dress well, how to cook, how to be worldly. Esquire's been doing that since 1933. So that also gave me a lot of cred with the producers and the fact that I am not quite as flamboyant as some of the uh, some other folks who were on Queer Eye and that I came from the Midwest. I think that was a bit of diversity that they wanted.
1: You need a Um, range of personalities. Yeah. Everyone needs their own viewer surrogate to attach themselves to.
2: It's fun to look back on it now.
1: Did you ever have a I mean, was TV the goal ever? Like, you know, were you ever 15 and you were like, I'm going to be famous?
2: I, I I did when I was 15 uh heavily fantasize about becoming famous, but it was as a rock star. Oh. I'm a huge music nerd.
1: Do you play any instruments?
2: Yeah, I play very badly piano. I have a guitar. I can't say I really know how to play it. And I grew up playing drums and had a couple of bands back in the day. Uh, not bands that anybody would remember, but just in college. Uh but I no, I had never been in a school play. I had no. Uh, it's really strange that how hard I tried to get the Queer Eye job. I interrupted a European vacation. I flew down from a vacation in Maine in a storm. I mean, I kept having these callbacks. They kept dragging me back for callbacks. Then um, it worked out. I mean, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, ultimately, because I, at a time in my life when my partner and I kind of wanted to move to New York, suddenly television made it possible and comfortable. Um, which, as anybody who lives here knows, is, not, is a lucky thing it's a, and a rare thing. Um, and now I never want to leave.
1: Pretty nice place living here. So you guys shoot
0: Chopped in New York?
2: We do, in Chelsea Market.
0: Just down
1: the street. There you go. A long ways down the street. A very
0: important food place. Our eater critic Robert Zitsema just declared that it's the best food hall in New York City.
1: And a really good hummus place just opened inside of
2: it. A bunch of stuff has just opened. I I have trouble being inside Chelsea Market because it gives me panic attacks. Uh, It's so crowded. It's like the Times Square of downtown. But there's one of the only places in New York that you can truly get a great taco. From Los Tacos, there's Numpang. I'm gonna date myself because I know there are places much newer that have just opened down there.
1: Yeah, just I mean, uh, Mike Salamanca's Hummus Place, Dizengoff, which is my current object of obsession because I I'm really into hum- I don't know, I'm into hummus right now. It's a weird thing.
2: We have several Middle Eastern restaurants uh, in the, that deliver in my area of Clinton Hill, and um, I I hate their hummus. It's boring. The most of the hummus that I've tasted here. As opposed to an Egyptian place I used to go in Chicago, I, which is where I got introduced to hummus. The hummus in New York City is too much about tahini and not enough lemon and not enough garlic for me. I think it's think I'll
1: agree with that. Yeah. No, I think that's totally fair. And
2: I don't know if that means that that Egyptian hummus is more vibrant than Lebanese hummus or what? It could there are be a
1: lot of debates about this. I think that like, you know, my, my husband is Middle Eastern and, and his father is Egyptian and his mother is Palestinian and there are... And, you know, we have lots of friends who are from all over the Middle East, and there is a lot of very strong animosity about whose hummus is superior. And I think in the end it is 100% dependent on the individual making the hummus.
2: And, and hey, you know, there's a, just like the debates that rage here about burgers and pizza. I mean, yeah, wow, I so, wouldn't have it any other way.
1: So do you still cook? Do you have time I'm, to cook?
2: I love to cook. I, I'm one of those people who gets – uncomfortable if too many days go by that I haven't been allowed to cook. And it's one of the things that's, uh, I'm, I, I'm constantly admonished by a certain husband of mine not to complain about my job, but one of the things (laughs) I love my job, it's great. But one of the things that is hard about it is for me is that it's, it's a 12 hour shoot day. And so if we're shooting, we usually shoot four or five days a week that I only have about a four hour window before I have to be back in bed. And so I can't cook and I don't really want to go out to dinner or anything because I'm trying to chill and go to bed really early, which I hate doing. Um, yeah, I love to cook. Ironically, when you consider where I work, I uh, am very much a slow food person. I like to braise things and cook things that take forever. And I'm, I don't even want a recipe that, that, Resolves itself quickly because it's. I, I want to savor the experience. You give yourself challenges, huh?
1: And the lingering pleasure.
2: Yeah, I just like to be in the kitchen with wine and music going, and and cook things that develop flavor slowly, like uh, like um, you know soups and stews. It's all simple.
1: What do you do in the summer when soups and stews are not?
2: I might cook a pork shoulder over charcoal for twelve hours.
1: Summer braises.
2: Make pulled pork. Oh, that smell. Get those tomatoes from the box. I'm
1: incredibly hungry right now. Right?
2: Actually, and, and um, for my another thing we did for my birthday last summer is we we hired the guys from the Meat Hook to come out and do a barbecue for us, Brent Young and those guys. And they, I mean, they killed it. And the, it was a whole, my as you might imagine, my, most of my friends are really into food. And I had some of the chop judges there, too, like Amanda Freytag and Chris Santos. And so everybody was really adventuresome mm-hmm. and into it. So the guys from the Meat Hook, come, for listeners who don't know, it's a place in Brooklyn that's an amazing butcher place. They also have a really successful sandwich business, and they cater. And they make their own sausages and they they showed up with with smoked ducks and a, a beef tendon salad and all this stuff that a lot of people, it's not your ordinary food. Um, they also have, I love also that they have easily half of their butchers are women and all of their butchers are, you know, like in their 20s and 30s and they're really cool and they have tattoos and stuff. Uh, and they're just gonzo food lovers. So they had this audience that was so appreciative. We were all just psyched to have them there and it was a great experience for everybody.
1: Man, that sounds like an awesome birthday.
2: It was great. And they were so the price and they, maybe they gave me a break cause I've said nice <laughs> things about them <laughs> publicly. I don't know, but the price was fantastic.
1: I got a six foot sub from them for my birthday this past year. Sweet. like I feel like we're on the same wavelength, but your party Sounds like it was a little the bit more
0: The meat hook's fun. great. I remember when it first opened, I was very intimidated to go up there and ask them for they're meat, so but cool. then they're like so nice about it. I feel like they've kind of broken. You know, everybody's kind of.
1: I'm intimidated in, by yeah. cool people, but then they're actually like well, really but real. They're,
2: they're total food nerds at heart. They just happen to have tattoos and they play speed metal behind the mm-hmm. counter, but they're pussy cats. They're delightful, but that's talk about. I don't. I'm not. As I said earlier, I'm not a trend person. But that's a trend that I can't. I can't even believe is happening. Is that the butcher is back and the butcher is 26, and this isn't only in New York City.
1: No, it's everywhere. It's
2: everywhere, and it's unbelievable. The appreciation that people are having. My mom is obsessed with grass fed steak. She lives in Carmel, Indiana. It's a suburb of Indianapolis. She has a great butcher.
0: Wow,
1: I think that's fantastic, and I think it's it's this whole pendulum swing away from like. The easy, processed, shrink-wrapped food that arose in the post-war era. And, like, it's it's weird to me that it's the butchers that are kind of the ones paving the way for everything else. But it's so obvious when you taste a grass-fed steak that's been recently cut by someone who actually knows what they're doing from a cat, like a cow that was not slaughtered seven years ago and kept in cold storage. Like, you're like, oh, no, this actually is supposed to taste incredible.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
0: you don't want to go back.
2: It's it's a great time to be a, a food lover. It really is.
0: All right, Ted. Well, it's time for that part in the show we like to call the lightning round. Uh-oh.
1: Da-da-da. Lightning round music. So we're going to
0: ask you some questions, and then you just answer whatever comes out. Oh, God.
1: Okay. Cool. Uh, so question number one is, if you were not a TV host, journalist, cookbook author, and podcast guest, what would you be doing
0: with your life?
2: I would be the lead singer of Aerosmith specifically Steven Tyler. <laughs> Actually, I don't really need to look like Steven Tyler. Let me think of somebody cuter. Um, that's what I that you know and it, it's funny cuz now on Chop Junior we have we have two guest judges in addition to one of our regular Chopped all time, long time judges, and the network likes us to have guests who are actor famous and actors and musicians and whatnot, and it's it, it it in some it lends something fun to the mix. It also makes the heavy the lifting a little heavier for for Amanda Freitag or Alex Corbello or myself. But they but it's 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 exposed me to some performers like who have nine million Instagram followers and who sing in stadiums and get their lyrics. Sung back to them, which to me I think would be the mo- the ultimate rush. The uh, and and, and, I, and I I feel like at fifty one that maybe that window might be closing on <laughs> me a little bit. Never
1: too late. Never too it's late to be a rock star.
2: We'll see. Uh, you know, uh, I'm yeah, yeah. We'll see. All right. So <laughs> I might learn how to play the damn piano. I bought a piano, but I haven't learned to to play it very well.
0: <laughs> so question number two: You got an hour at the airport. You got money in your pocket what are you going to do how are you going to kill that time
2: i'm going to read a magazine
1: which magazine
2: vanity fair usually cuz i they, they do good long form yarns and they have a little bit of a little bit of bubbly trashy stuff and a little bit of serious reporting i i honestly i i go to lots of i i read all more if you let me over coffee i'll read for 3 hours or 4 hours every morning and i do a lot of it digitally uh, but one thing that I'm, I'm experiencing is a sort of what they might call a flight to quality when it comes to journalism. Mm-hmm. And there are – Eater is a great website and I think is an, a very high quality and journalistically sound website. There are lots of news aggregators that are not. And I've, and I've, re- and I've gotten really sick of most of them. And I recently subscribed I, – I get the New York Times, of course. I also just signed up for the Washington Post because they do real journalism. And particularly with the election stuff, which I'm obsessively reading, even though it makes me want to die, <laughs> um, I went to the Post because they have a really good nas- national presidential race coverage. And it's also really fun to read George Will sputter apoplectically at the phenomenon of what's his face, who I won't mention the name of. <laughs> I'm not answering these questions very rapidly. No, these are great. <clears throat>
1: um our next question: If you had to be a contestant on a food competition show that is not yours or one of yours that you host, which one would you want to be a contestant on?
2: I mean, it, the thing is, I'm not a professional chef, so it, I wanted, I would. I'd, I'd be happy to compete against people who are kind of at my level, but it would have to be like you know. Home cooks, like okay, okay we're gonna
1: we're gonna have home cook edition of whatever.
2: <laughs> the home cook edition of whatever. I don't watch any of the other competition shows. If that's what you're getting at, I've I've actually never seen a Gordon Ramsay show, not for any special reason. Other than that, I'm so steeped in that life all the time at my job, I, ha- I can't keep up with my own show. Um, people have asked all the time when I'm gonna cook. When the, when am I ever gonna cook, cook on shop? But I
1: don't think you should do that.
2: I'm not going to. Yeah, thank you. I, we, I we're getting along great. We should hang yes, out, we should. Um, th- 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 because I mean, maybe you could put me up against Sunny Anderson. She's a home cook. I'm not cooking against Alec Gornashelli. She's a barracuda. She's amazing. Not only am I not a pro- professional chef at a neighborhood restaurant in in Nashville or a diner in Jersey City, but I'm not a national. I'm not a. I'm not a professional chef in New York City who knows how to cook competitively. That's a giant skill, and there are about twenty-five people in the world who really, really have it, and about fifteen of them work at Food Network. So, and I the, uh, sitting next to me, I'm not. The, why would anybody think that'd be a fair fight? And then, even if you don't care about that, who, who are going to be the judges, and are you going to consider the results legit? If they take me to dessert, yeah, I, I mean, didn't I, think there's this always going to be. Enough. But most important <laughs> of all, I'm not giving some other schmuck the chance to audition for my gig, dude.
1: <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> no, that's a very well reasoned answer. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I, yeah. I retract my question. No, It was not at poorly all.
2: considered. Okay, <laughs> no. <at all. laughs> it's an excellent <laughs> question.
0: <laughs> Next question: You got an eight-hour road trip. It's just you. You're gunning down the highway. You're playing some music and you're singing along to it. What is it?
2: Well, probably. I mean, one of my favorite bands is the New Pornographers.
1: Oh yeah. So good it call. could
2: it could be that. I went through this really silly phase where, so one of the fun things about Twitter, if, you're reason, if, if you happen to be on a food cable show, uh, a lot of music people watch us and a lot of music people are really into food. You know, it goes together, but Battali's a giant music nut and his friends with Jay-Z and Bono and all and these the guys. It's a
0: shared brain cell, food and music or something. I really
2: think so. And to me, and I'm actually troubled by people who don't play music when they cook, even in a pro context. I went back in the kitchen at Alinea. It was as silent as a, mortuary and I just made me uncomfortable. I thought Zeppelin should be on, <laughs> which also might be something that I would play in my car. But, uh, last summer I thought I go, I was contacted on Twitter by the touring drummer for the new pornographers who said, Hey dude, I really dig chopped. Would you send some, he asked me for something. And I said, Hey dude, I'm really into the n- new pornographers. Can I, can I like meet them? <laughs> and he said, Yeah, Carl Newman's really into chopped, also. And Carl Newman and his wife, who live up in the Catskills, they used to live in Brooklyn. uh, We got in touch, and the next thing I, the the next thing you know, without asking my husband, I, I invited them to my house. After they were, I said, "Hey, you guys are playing Park Slope. You're you're playing in in Prospect Park this summer. Do you want to come over for a little after party afterwards?" To my amazement, they said yes. And then I had to tell Barry. (laughs) <laughs> I had invited a rock band <laughs> to our house at like midnight and they came. Um That's so cool. Carl and Christy wow. and the dr- and it was it was awesome. Another very long answer. But that's
1: um so cool. It that's was, so cool. It,
2: it was great. They drank all my liquor and then about two weeks later they sent me really high quality liquor to replace it. I mean so that's that, class. It is well see they're not they're not. This is. They're rock stars who are like my age, and they have a couple kids. So they're the kind of rock stars who would like if they stayed at your house, they would take the sheets off the bed before they che- before they left. This is not old school, you know, strashing trashing of hotel rooms kind of rock stars. Really These are replace your tequila type rock stars.
1: So considerate. Very I love cool. it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you um, if you could bring back any restaurant that is now closed from the dead and have it reopen in the world, what, what restaurant would it be?
2: Mm, boy. Um, you know, I'll just say this because I had, it, it was a, it was a part of my life during a, a, a really wonderful part of my career when I was, a, and not that I went there, I only went there three times in my life, but I'm going to say Charlie Trotter again, another fancy pants, fancy schmancy restaurant. But I say that not because I was a regular there. I ate there three times, both on somebody else's dime, always at on, on a, one magazine or another's dime. And Charlie was not. Universally beloved by everybody. But I wrote an article about Charlie when his first cook. Here's the th- Charlie Trotter died uh, at a, a very untimely death a couple of years ago. And here's something that people may not know about him Charlie Trotter wrote the very first coffee table cookbook. His first cookbook, people laughed. It was a $50 cookbook. It was published by 10 Speed Press. It was f- lavish, full of these gorgeous pictures of this impossibly complicated food. And I wrote an article for Chicago Magazine that I still love called Sorry, Charlie, in which myself and a bunch of 20-something friends tried to cook a few of his recipes. And it was just a comedy of errors. People, tap, we, people smoked back then and tapping ashes into the food by accident and things going terribly wrong. And Charlie loved it. It was it, 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 He had a real sense of humor that not everybody saw. I'm sure he was a bastard to work for, but you have to be when you run a restaurant that that complex and he signed and he signed that book for me Um, so I'm going to say that one.
1: That's a beautiful answer. But,
2: you know, I mean, I'm much more likely to be found eating, you know, an Italian beef hoagie than I am to be eating that way. But, um.
1: Well, I think you can't eat that way too often without inviting gout into your life.
2: I know somebody with gout.
1: We know a couple of
2: people. (laughs) Isn't that messed up? It's an
1: occupational hazard of the food world. Yeah, but
2: I I mean, really? You're like 26. How do you know somebody with gout? I'm
1: 34. (laughs) And I don't know. There are a couple of high profile people who who have their secrets that they let us in on. It's terrifying.
2: (laughs) I really do know someone who right now has gout. Actually, I just read that, um, that Frank Bruni had a bout of gout. Yeah, yep. he now wrote
0: f- about it in the Times. Yeah. How do you get rid of it? You just start eating roughage and-
2: I think you have to give up alcohol for
0: one thing. Well, that is the- Let's hope we never find uh, For out. the people that already that have gout, that that <laughs> yes. must be some just- a, Email a us at upsellateater.com
1: with your gout stories.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag you know gout stories. <laughs> you know what? That would not be a dumb story. That would be an amazing story to do on Eater.
1: It actually would be. Yeah, like, no, For real, if you have gout and you're listening to this, drop us a line at upsellateater.com.
2: And it's no joke, I mean, I had, I had some pain in one of my toes well, and I, I worried, oh my God, I'm not getting gout, am I? That's so, I, I, I went to a doctor and he said, oh man, if you had gout, when you have gout, you can't drape a sheet over your foot without, it being, without agonizing pain. Oh I mean, it's God. very, very painful. That sounds awful.
0: I hope none of us ever get gout. Me too. No. Well, okay. Last question. I'm somewhat related. Okay. So you go to the bar in heaven and the bartender pours you your drink, your favorite drink. The most perfect version of it that's ever existed.
2: What is it? It's probably a Tanqueray Negroni. And I like that. That's the gin that I like. Um, I, I I really like gin. I really like gin and tonics um, with nice tonic water and but uh, all these varieties of small batch gins that are out, even Bombay, I find I like Bombay is definitely a good gin, but it's 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 a little it's lacking some of the bite and some of the the specific aromatics that come in Tanqueray are just what I go for. That's my thing. I do have about sixteen different kinds of gin in my liquor cabinet because people keep giving it to me for my birthday or whatever.
1: Because you like gin.
2: I do. Not bad to have around. No
1: when the new pornographers drop by. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> that, the the new pornographers are tequila people. <laughs> okay. I've, I've learned. I but hope
0: that, that now that you've shared this bit of insight into the new pornographers that they constantly get asked to these fun parties because they'll constantly replace the liquor.
2: Well, yeah, I mean hey, you know they, were, they showed excellent manners. I, I mean, I did have to kick, kick them out of the house at 3:30 because you know, I had to go to you know I mean that's really late for me but um, and they left politely. Uh, but they were great. <laughs> they were great. I mean, but that's that was one of that's one of the things about Twitter that I really enjoy is that I've gotten in touch with several musicians that I like uh and have gotten to meet people and then my my husband's like, "You know, you really should stop trying to meet your rock heroes because what makes you think they're going to be nice people just because they make good songs?" And the, you know, of course they're not. Um some of them are, but you know, well, I, I, you know, I, I was kind of, I was really sad to lose David Bowie this year, as so many of us were. He was a hero of mine, but I kind of thought, I mean, I wonder if he would have been nice. He, I, you know, you got to be careful about trying to meet your heroes. It's always risky. It's always kind of risky.
1: Well, you turned out to be really nice. Thanks for coming by. Hey, thanks for having (laughs) me.
2: Lots of fun. Thanks for the cookies. They smell amazing.
1: They look really good, too. Um, Ted Allen, you can check him out on Chopped and Chopped Junior. And you have cookbooks, and you're on Twitter, and you're on Instagram. He's everywhere. Check him out. What's your Instagram handle?
2: Um, The Ted Allen. And that's also my Twitter handle.
1: Cool. Ted, thanks for coming by the Eater Upsell.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Hey. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's exquisitely beautiful Midtown Manhattan studios. Your hosts are Greg Morbido and me, Helen Rosner. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. Our producers are Patrick Bolger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Miles Yule and Alex Ulreich. And of course, the most important person involved in the creation of all of this is you. Yes, you. Thank you, beautiful
0: listener, for being who you are.